Amen. If you will stand as you are able, wherever you may be, for the reading of our word tonight. Our scripture tonight comes from Matthew chapter 27, verses 15 through 26, as we continue to walk the journey to the cross with Jesus. Now, at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. While he he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate's wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that innocent man, Jesus. For today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah. And all of them said, let him be crucified. Then he asked, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, His blood be on us and on our children. So Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, thank you all again for joining us on this uh, evening of a beautiful, beautiful spring day with the buttercups coming up and the trees blossoming for what is not a very spring-like scripture. (laughs) Reading this scripture, kind of preparing again for tonight, I thought, golly, what kind of a different sort of an air that this scripture brings Um, than the air that has literally been outside today. But I invite you in the midst of maybe what could feel disorienting to center ourselves on this scripture. Um, I invite you to listen to how the Spirit may be speaking to you through it tonight. Let us pray. God, I give this response to your word to you. May it glorify you in all that we say and do, God. May my words be reflections of your truth, God. Bind us to you. Move in us as we explore your word. Help us to grow deeper in our discipleship as your followers. It's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. When you're in seminary, or maybe you have done this unconsciously, unintentionally, they teach you about something called narrative criticism. Narrative criticism is just a really fancy word for reading a story in the Bible 
and inserting yourself into that story and thinking about the different characters, the different people or the different symbols in that story and the different perspectives that they might have had. So if you are to apply narrative criticism to the scripture for tonight, you might think about, okay, what's Jesus's perspective? He's the willingly suffering servant, Pilate. He's the man of very great authority, a Roman official that in theory has the power to release Jesus, the Messiah. You've got Pilate's wife, the woman who has a little bit of influence because she can go, she's married to Pilate, she can tell him what she thinks and she's had this kind of prophetic dream. Um, she's ultimately, I guess, of little influence, you could argue. And you've got Barabbas, the supposedly actually guilty criminal, the notorious criminal, it says. And then you have this crowd who chants to give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus, the supposed Messiah. When we study this scripture, we can come at it at a million different angles, right? Through these characters. And at different times of life, when you revisit this scripture, which maybe you do each Lent, each year, these people will take on different meanings for us. They will speak to us in different ways. And that's the beauty of the living word, right? But this week, as I was really digging into this scripture, as I was really praying over it and reading it and studying it, what continuously caught my attention was the role of this crowd. This unnamed crowd and their power to push against Pilate's own personal convictions, the insistence of his wife, and then the ultimate truth to ultimately send Jesus to the cross. It says at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd anyone whom they wanted. Pilate's wife tries to convince Pilate to let Jesus the Christ go, but all the crowd gets riled up for Barabbas to be let go. And even when Pilate insists and questions them multiple times on their convictions as the crowd, they continue to raise their voices and insist that Barabbas be set free. I've had people in the past ask me, not particularly in relationship to this scripture, but just in general, why was Jesus killed? Why did Jesus die? Did he have to die in order to become the Christ? Did God ordain it? Was it unavoidable? Was it only for the atonement of our sins? Was it Pilate's fault or some Jewish leaders or Roman officials or Judas who turns them in for some silver or, you know, fill in the blank? Well, tonight, I want to answer that question, A, that that's multifaceted, but I want to answer that question by looking at this particular event. As we continue to walk the path to the cross with Jesus and explore the events that led up to his crucifixion in this passion series that we're in, I want to think about the role of the crowd in Jesus's ultimate crucifixion. If we are to put ourselves in the shoes of the people in the crowd, with people chanting around us, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas, what would be a faithful response to Pilate's questions? What is our faithful response to Jesus now? I'm sure everyone, wherever you may be here or online has a story about peer pressure. 
Maybe you've been the victim of peer pressure, of bullying or gossiping by a group of friends and know how hurtful it is. And maybe you've given in to peer pressure or perpetuated it, or maybe even started it. Maybe you have a playground story as a kid, or you've got a lunchroom story as a teenager. Maybe you have a story as an adult. I certainly have one of those sitting at the lunch table with a bunch of colleagues, not at this church, (laughs) but with a bunch of colleagues, and they're just hounding one of the guys at work that just kind of keeps messing up. Don, he's such a screw-up. Man, he's always late to work these days. He keeps messing up all of these projects. He looks so disheveled. He just cannot get his life together. And all the while, while everybody is sitting there, yeah, 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 Don's a screw-up. Everyone sitting there knows that Don is going through a divorce and a really hard custody battle for his kids. But, you know, I didn't want to look like that kid, that woman at the lunch table that said, hey guys, like, you know, Don's going through a really hard time and maybe we should cut him a break. Sometimes it's just been easier in those moments of kind of peer pressure to just ignore it and go with it and just awkwardly laugh and nod and look away as everybody gossips or gives somebody a hard time. And I think of these sorts of peer pressure situations where I've sort of avoided the discomfort that I might feel from speaking up and just let the harm and the hurt continued when I think of this crowd shouting, crucify him. What would I do if I was one of the crowd? What do I do now? Because the reality is that though we aren't standing in the physical reality of Jesus' crucifixion, like this crowd in the passage, we are metaphorically, we are spiritually, we are in reality, often standing in the place where we have the decision to stand with Jesus and his call to love or not with our actions and words. We are the people in the crowd every day, constantly faced with the decision to stay rooted in our faiths and act as disciples of Christ or not, to shout Barabbas or Jesus. For example, I have been a part of lots of conversations about faith and race and immigration and lots of sorts of social justice issues um, that often confront us as humans in the world. And maybe you've been a part of these too, intentionally or unintentionally, maybe part of our studies here at the church, but maybe just it comes up, it's what's on the news a lot these days. And they can be very uncomfortable conversations, right? They are not something that I particularly like to get myself into. They can easily become very polarized or defensive or aggressive feeling. They can get really sticky, uncomfortable, right? You may have experienced them with your family or your friends or your colleagues or your Sunday school class or your Bible study, or you're really trying to wrestle with the realities of racism and what to do as a Christian, but you're met with kind of accusations of agendas or judgment, or you're sitting there not even thinking about it and it comes up at the conversation at the dinner table starts to be a little bit harmful. Mom or dad says something, maybe very unintentionally, that's actually really hurtful towards people of color. And you don't want to start this whole family conflict, this family row, but, you know, it's getting uncomfortable. 
I've had several conversations with multiple different folks here at Brentwood that have found themselves in their Sunday school classes or their small groups or their groups of friends that they've heard others share beliefs or opinions that are actually really mean and maybe even unintentionally so, but they're super exclusive. And gosh, it gets awkward, right? To speak up in a group of people that you love, a group of friends that you love and care about. You don't wanna hurt their feelings or lose friends, but you kind of hear in this one ear like, Adam, Greg, Allison, you really need to speak up. That's what Jesus would do. But it's hard to start chanting something different when the whole crowd is chanting, give us Barabbas, right? Think of last week's story of Peter's denial, or if you didn't catch it, the story is Peter, one of Jesus's most beloved and trusted disciples, ends up denying that he knows and follows Jesus three times, not once, twice, but three times um, as Jesus is going to the cross. It's much easier to self-protect out of fear or insecurity or uncertainty or whatever it is that drives us than to speak up, I think. And Peter's story is extreme, right? Because Peter's probably going to be killed if he admits that he follows Jesus. But it's so hard, even when we are so deeply convicted that Jesus is the Savior, to speak up on behalf of Jesus in those uncomfortable situations. When it comes to the actually really uncomfortable, sticky sort of stuff, the stuff that makes your armpits sweat, It's even easier to just go with the flow, to not stir the pot, to just kind of look aside and ignore that it's happening. When I was thinking of this scripture for tonight, the word or phrase groupthink came to mind. And I honestly did not know what groupthink um, actually meant. I mean, I had this idea of it, but I went and did my research. And it's an actual psychological term. um, And this is what it means. Groupthink is a psychological phenomenon that occurs within a group of people in which the desire for harmony or conformity in the group results in an irrational or dysfunctional decision-making outcome. Psychology Today wrote, groupthink is a phenomenon that occurs when a group of well-intentioned people make irrationally or non-optimal decisions spurred by the urge to conform or the belief that dissent is impossible. The problematic or premature consensus that is a characteristic of groupthink may be fueled by a particular agenda or it may be due to group members valuing harmony and coherence above critical thought. Honestly, I thought it was just going to be about how hard it is to break the mold, to think outside of the box, to break away from what a group thinks when everybody around you thinks similarly. It's so interesting to me though, and this is the point that I really walked away with, that group think, this kind of idea that it's hard to think differently is a real psychologically studied term that is, it is incredibly difficult to psychologically, to physically, to break away from the thinking of those around you. And even more so to do something against the grain. That there is this often intangible pressure to stick with the group and not break free. But then I think of scripture. 
And throughout scripture, the stories of the faithful are men and women that over and over are speaking up even when those around them won't. I read somewhere and I could not figure out, I mean, I read years ago, I could not figure out who said this, so sorry that they're not getting credit, that the most detrimental thing that happened to Christians is that Christianity became the cultural norm because it allowed us to get comfortable and comfort makes it more difficult to break away from the mold. But then we see from the very beginning of scripture, right? Moses in the midst of the Egyptians, he was kind of one of them, right? But he has to break away to speak up for the Hebrew people. Isaiah, Micah, Ezekiel, these prophets, they're often condemned by their own people for their standing up for justice and compassion and God's fully embodied kingdom here on earth. It is such not a popular message, even though it's the most faithful one. And Jesus, of course, he's speaking up amongst and against some of his own Jewish people, even very pointedly, some of the leaders. I mean, you have him entering into the temple, the Jewish synagogue and flipping tables, right? What Jesus sang was often not popular. It was definitely an intentional going against the grain of what was being taught. He was continuously challenging the interpretation of scripture and it ultimately sent him to the cross. And I wonder, as I reflect on this as Allison in 2021, and I invite you to do the same, I wonder where are the moments that we are finding ourselves as Christians, as the whole body of Christ, as the church universal, and as individuals? Where are we in the crowd being asked if we are going to follow Jesus or follow another way? And how are we responding, even if it means breaking from the pack? In the face of racism, in the face of discrimination of those who are impoverished, where is it? How did we respond to the killing of six Asian women this past week in Atlanta as individuals or the church? Even if in this particular event, the motive by the shooter was not consciously racist, how have we responded as the church and as individuals seeking to embody God's love to the fact that hate crimes against Asian Americans in the 12 biggest cities in the US this past year alone have risen by 140%. Is the world hearing the church shout for love and justice rooted in the love of all people? Or are they hearing us shout some version of give us Barabbas? Or, and here's what really struck me because I think I relate most to it. Are we just silent? Are we saying nothing? We're not shouting Barabbas, we're just kind of ignoring it, right? As I continue to think about this crowd and wondered where are the dissenters that are standing up for Jesus the Christ, not Jesus Barabbas, I thought about myself and I wondered, well, maybe our biggest struggle as Christians, at least here in our context in Brentwood, Tennessee, and if you're watching from somewhere else, maybe you can relate, Maybe our greatest challenge is that we are silent bystanders. 
maybe letting the crowd shout Barabbas and not joining in, but we're also not pushing back. And I ask myself, what are the consequences of that? I don't know if you have ever heard, had the chance to uh, read Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail, but it, I mean, it is so convicting and powerful. And as I was thinking about this scripture and thinking about kind of this silent bystander idea, his letter came up for me. And it's because he has been imprisoned in Birmingham, letter from Birmingham jail, because of his work in the civil rights movement, right? So speaking out on behalf of Christ's justice against racism. And he writes this letter in particular to response of some white clergy men who have written telling Dr. King, you just need to hold on a second. Like, just give it some time. This will all work itself out. You know, just give it a second. Like, we love you, Dr. King. We're sympathetic to your cause, but you need to hold on a second. Well, what ends up happening in the letter that is so convicting to me is that Dr. King says, hey, listen, here's the deal. As a white moderate, the people that are writing this letter you are silence, not speaking against racism, but saying just give it a, some time, has actually become more harmful than the people that are actively racist, right? And Dr. King begs them to just say something, just stand up and say something, just speak out against racism and just stop telling us to just hold on a minute because time is neutral, right? Jamar Tisby, if you've ever read his book, The Color of Compromise, we studied it here at church. He talks about one of the biggest faults of primarily the white church in the struggle against racism is silence. We become complicit when we are silent as Christians, whether it's about racism or something else. But we become complicit in injustice when we don't speak out against it. When we stay in our comfortable places, when we kind of smile and nod, and turn the other cheek. We give in to the crowd, the peer pressure ultimately. Now listen, we live in a deeply divided country. I'm in no way trying to divide us more <laughs> by saying you better stick to your opinions no matter what and without compassion every, air every single one of your grievances every moment of every day. I'm not trying to say this. In fact, I'm trying to say the opposite really. I'm actually trying to say, stay rooted in the gospel truth no matter what. Stay unified in Jesus no matter what. Even when you feel uncomfortable or like you're about to stir the pot, remember that this discomfort may be the necessary step to recenter us, to reunify us in the gospel. Remember, Paul challenged us to not be lukewarm Christians, but to go all in. Sometimes I wonder if we are asking too little of ourselves as disciples of Christ. I think in our concept, in our context, and maybe this is just me, but we have often gotten stuck in wanting to avoid discomfort or conflict. We value that kind of conflict avoidant politeness that though it's meant to be out of respect and love, and it certainly can be, it can also lead to the point of being silent bystanders of not wanting to challenge the status quo and wanting to be comforted and consoled by our religion instead of challenged. 
And gosh, don't get me wrong, there is certainly room for comforts and peace and compassion, 100,000%, right? And there is a time, if we look to Jesus as our example, for flipping some tables over to confront the injustice and oppression in our midst. Like literally, Jesus flipped the tables. Now, obviously, there is a huge spectrum between silence and conflict avoidance and flipping tables. So maybe don't go report to Davis that I told you to flip tables. But I think what I'm really getting at is at least a first step invitation to intentionally listen to how the Spirit is calling and courageously responding to that call. You're sitting at a lunch with a group of friends, colleagues, dinner table, meeting table, Zoom with uh, folks at work, standing in line at Chick-fil-A, hanging with your kids at the park, talking to your kids on the phone. Something feels off in the conversation. Lean into love. Don't run from the discomfort, the potential conflict that might come because you insist on embodying Christ's love. Pause and ask yourself and pray, asking God, why is this uncomfortable? Why am I getting sweaty armpits? And if the answer is, well, because it's contrary to the gospel, what's happening in this space, these words, these attitudes are harmful, discern how to respond. I think that is a first response to just say something in love and with the spirit of curiosity. It starts here, I think, and then it grows. When our kids tell their kids about us, will they remember us as people who insisted on living out Christ's love, insisted on living out Christ's love, who were always caring for the least of these, the hurting, the oppressed? Will they remember us as people who were always speaking up for those who were hurting? Will they remember us as silent bystanders or even shouters of Barabbas? When the world talks about the church, will they, do they see us as folks that shout Barabbas with malice in our voices? I mean, certainly the case is that for some folks, but also, and maybe just as harmful, will people know the church? Will the people of the world know the church as silent bystanders who really do nothing? And thus we fall complicit to injustice. Or will, can the church be known because of our actions and deeds our desire to be active participators in bringing the kingdom of God here on earth? Will we be known to be actively shouting on behalf of Jesus from the rooftops and living out his love in radical ways? I certainly hope for the latter and invite us in our Lenten journeys to pray about what that might look like in our own lives and as the people coming together as Christ's worshipers, the church. I certainly invite you into that journey as Adam prayed to partner with Jesus, to rely on Jesus and seek to be like Jesus in every way. Amen.